let me go back, before the Cold War, long before, to 1875 and an Austro-Hungarian Arctic explorer named Karl Weibrecht. He had been on a couple of extraordinary excursions of discovery into the Arctic and brought back the idea that international scientific cooperation might solve some of the persistent mysteries of that frozen region, which had barely been touched up to that point by Europeans. He proposed that a year of cooperation be set up between nations to study the Arctic. This was all very well received because splitting the cost and risk and sharing the benefits is usually a good deal especially when, in previous decades and centuries, exploration had been sponsored by national governments and militaries. And so, in 1882, the world had its first international polar year, the IPY, which lasted through 1883. On the 50th anniversary of the first IPY, the second polar year was launched between 1932 and 1933. It included 44 countries and brought about advances and outright breakthroughs in understanding the ionosphere and Earth's magnetosphere, which were becoming increasingly important for navigation and communication in the 20th century. But during and after the Second World War, the scientific exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union began to get very, very chilly. And with matters of atomic energy and weapons at stake, exchange was almost entirely frozen. And I certainly don't just mean between those two states, but between all of what was called the West and the East. Another year of cooperation was proposed by a meeting of scientists in 1950, but this time it would be a bigger, bolder scheme with more areas of study, considering the advances in computers, radar, communications, and, in particular, rocketry. This would be the International Geophysical Year of 1957 to 1958, the 75th anniversary of the first polar year. There was just one frustrating problem standing in the way of the IGY. And then he died. Stalin, I mean. He died in 1953, and the whole tone of the IGY and the decade changed. From wartime preparation and competition to peaceful scientific investigation. Or at least that was the plan. What better way to use advances in internationally shared geophysical research than to improve the military might of your Cold War forces? Oceanography for nuclear submarines, meteorology for nuclear bombers, the ionosphere for radar and communications, the magnetosphere for navigation, and of course, what began it all 75 years before, a study of the Arctic. Wind, weather, snow, and ice, just in case, two warring parties, hypothetically, decided to take the shortest road over the top to get at each other's necks. This is a small part of that story, the continued adventures of the U.S. Army finding its place 
in Greenland. Cold War on Ice, Part 3. The IGY and the Ice Cap. This time on the Cold War Vaults. As I've said on previous episodes in this series, the purpose of the U.S. Army's many efforts in Greenland through the 1950s and very early 1960s was a race for relevance in the Cold War. The question being this. At the end of the Second World War, in a nuclear-armed world, what is the place of conventional World War II-era forces? The theory behind that being that nuclear deterrence would keep any war from happening, and using those weapons could easily clear any massed ground army. The resolve of the planners involved was tested soon enough when the Korean War broke out in 1950, and some in Truman's administration had to grapple with the very real possibility that nuclear weapons might not be the absolute deterrent that they had imagined. Truman himself thought that their use might actually expand the war, and if they were used and failed to be decisive, well, so much for American supremacy. John Lewis Gaddis explains the dilemma better than I can. Of this situation in the Korean War, he said, quote, it's one of the biggest dogs that didn't bark in the entire Cold War. There was no clear strategy worked out ahead of time for what the role of nuclear weapons in the limited war would be. You're talking about a war, particularly after the Chinese intervene, with peasants coming down mountain trails carrying everything on their backs. And this was simply not what the atomic bomb had been built for. The only way that you can make the atomic bomb credible is precisely by not using by keeping it out there as a kind of mysterious awesome force that to use it would actually cheapen it somehow end quote and thank you dr gaddis and this way of thinking was absolutely angelic music to the army's ears leaving open the opportunity that the branch needed to maintain its funding its congressional support and its relevance in the nuclear-armed Cold War world. I talked first about the Thule Air Base and the impressive success of building a capable Air Force base over one short building season, at least getting it into a usable state. This definitely established the Army Corps of Engineers and its logistical capabilities as useful, if not essential, to building up the Arctic as a fortress wall. And then the Army went further in demonstrating construction and logistical prowess with Camp Century, which in turn was a project designed to look for a way to keep, or achieve at least, parity with the nuclear forces of the Air Force and the Navy. That would have been Project Iceworm had it been realized. 
But before Camp Century, the Army wanted to extend its success in Arctic exploration with a set of expeditions starting in 1952 and with planning for the International Geophysical Year already underway, the spirit of scientific exploration, for military application of course, fueled intense competition, not just between East and West, but as I've said before, between the branches of the U.S.'s own military. Remember, this is the decade when, largely because of the challenge of the IGY, the first artificial satellites were put into orbit around the Earth and the space race began. It was when the USS Nautilus nuclear-powered submarine passed under the North Pole, under the ice, and when the planet's ocean floors were surveyed more completely than ever before, laying the foundation for understanding plate tectonics and providing some useful maps of undersea mountains for submarine navigation, as it turned out. The Army again made Greenland a testbed for its efforts, exploring transportation and building techniques, and all the while, especially as the IGY approached, supporting civilian scientific research in its adventures on the ice cap. In April 1952, the Army wanted to push its transportation capabilities further in support of what seemed the inevitable construction of more military outposts on any patch of exposed land in northern Greenland. The official documentary film of the expedition, which is FB286 for those with the old catalogs, is called Ice Cap 1. Though there isn't any trustworthy archival information to support the fact that the name was used for anything more than publicity. In any case, that official film describes the purpose of operations this way. But today, more than ever before, there's been reason to invade this whiteness, to mark and explore it for an urgent military purpose, that of finding a means of transportation across the ice cap by which troops and heavy equipment could travel to potential bases protecting the northern approach to the Western Hemisphere. In 1952, the Army Transportation Corps organized and sent an expedition across the gigantic ice cap that covers most of Greenland. This is the story of their mission. The idea was to use the same quick but massive construction effort that built Thule, but in even more northerly parts of Greenland that could only be accessed over the ice cap. The plan called for massive convoys of material and men crawling over the ice day and night and building a network of Thule-like air bases in a matter of months. It took some very hopeful thinking and a real lack of understanding of the Greenland ice to propose the April 1952 attempt. But, if it worked, it would save an extraordinary amount of money and time. It called for using off-the-shelf equipment, unmodified for the environment. 10 and 20 ton bobsleds would carry supplies, Bunkhouses, called wanagans, were built from lumber and put onto skids. All of it would be pulled by Caterpillar D7 tractors, 
unmodified, and really better suited for the mud of a construction site. Where only dog sleds had gone before, now an overburdened tractor convoy made its way from Thule to the Thule takeoff, Camp Tuto, and then onto the ice cap. Though not very far, to be honest. This effort was so early that the right equipment to find crevasses hadn't been developed yet. Many of these fissures in the ice were too narrow or snow-covered to be visible from the aerial reconnaissance, and maps were incomplete. So the expedition did its best with what it had. Skiers went ahead and poked the ground with poles. The tractors were allowed to run ahead, with the driver walking far behind, remotely controlling it with two long cables connected to the brakes. According to the Army's film report, none of the vehicles were lost, but several of the sleds did fall into some of the smaller crevasses and, we can assume, had to be extracted with some difficulty and a lot of time. On reflection, the film's narrator says, quote, Perhaps there was too much weight here for crossing the marginal area. A decision was made to go no further. End quote. In the end, the expedition turned back after traveling just 17 miles. Enough warm weather, warm for Greenland, I guess, and more importantly, summer light, was left in 1952 to make a second attempt. What was learned in the spring would completely change the approach of the Army Transportation Corps to ice cap travel and it would set the pattern for many more expeditions through the 1950s. The next attempt would be a very different endeavor and would feature the first hints of real Arctic science in the service of military transport. This time, the Army Transportation Corps would use modified and custom-fabricated vehicles and equipment to try to press farther into the interior According to Dr. Carl Benson of the University of Alaska, and a major member of the scientific team on many of the 1950s expeditions in Greenland and the Antarctic, the thing that made it all possible was a World War II-era amphibious tracked vehicle called the M29 Weasel. They are not big, about the size of a Jeep, Benson was charged with modifying the weasels into Arctic explorers. The cabs were extended to hold electronics and communications gear, and to make sleeping space for two occupants. If you've ever seen a weasel, and I will put a picture in the show notes, you'll see that this is no small task. Or it is a small task, I guess. Each of the expeditions had one specially designed navigation weasel, which had an acrylic astrodome added to the roof. An astrodome is a sort of viewing bubble that was common on several aircraft of the era. It allows the navigator of an aircraft, or a weasel, to stick his head into it and take sextant readings for astronavigation, when the weather was generous enough, of course. The navigation weasel was also outfitted with a theodolite for positioning and survey, and a gyro compass for direction. Later, 
the expeditions would begin to experiment with marine radar for navigation as well. The Army repeatedly referred to the similarities between seafaring exploration and navigating the ice cap, and certainly the isolation, lack of landmarks, and the outfitting of the navigation weasel supports this comparison. But I've often liked to think of it as a space-age endeavor, a sort of almost self-contained caravan on the surface of another planet. The weasels pulled newly downsized one-ton sleds instead of the 10 and 20-ton sleds that had been too heavy for the marginal zone. Some sleds were loaded with supplies, and others had newly designed lighter-weight wanagans. The wanagans acted as office space for scientific work, or as mess halls. The plywood desk in the working wanagan could be shifted and turned into a bunk. So while two men slept in the weasels, two more could be accommodated in each wanagon. The emphasis in these early excursions was traveling light, as opposed to total self-sufficiency. And so the Air Force made supply drops along the route. The expeditions used a method of airdrop called free drop, which is actually rarely used because it doesn't employ parachutes, and is as simple as, Dr. Benson phrased it, just open the door and kick things out. But for the Greenland ice cap, with its layer of soft snow, free drop was perfectly suited. C-119s would fly extremely low and, well, they would just kick things out. Through the 1950s, more excursions were made onto the ice cap, with names like King Dog, Top Dog, and Lead Dog, testing new equipment and producing snow and ice science with a raft of climate science in the bargain. Most importantly, aerial surveys were made of crevasse hazards and more exposed land where forward operating bases might eventually be built. Along with that, some particularly interesting transportation engineering experiments were tried. They ranged from the innovative to the very quirky. I will be sure to put a few pictures in the show notes. But all of it was in the name of making the U.S. Army the world's premier Arctic exploration and fighting force. Of all of those expeditions, none could compare to Lead Dog 1960. This was the Army's entry into the great explorations of the International Geophysical Year, the complete transit of the Greenland ice cap on a northerly route with a tractor convoy, which was called a heavy swing, incidentally, using new technologies, vehicles, and research objectives to rival any other IGY endeavor. Though it was technically a couple of years late, but the IGY affected scientific projects during the entire decade, so I'll let it slide. I've mentioned some of these before. This was the short span of time that saw Sputnik orbit the Earth in October 1957. The first living creature in space, a dog named Laika, in November. The first U.S. satellite in January 1958. The USS Nautilus on its polar mission with Operation Sunshine in August of that year. It was a time for high adventure, 
and the U.S. Army rose to the challenge with the Lead Dog Expedition of 1960. The mission was to take a nearly self-sufficient tractor train from Camp Tuto to Crown Prince Christian Land and to Perryland, and establish a trail to the ice-free areas of the far north of Greenland. I say nearly self-sufficient because there were supply drops during the trip and caches established over the previous two years. This was so that the swing could be light at the outset and navigate the hazards of the marginal zone more easily. This gave the swing a fast start before being more heavily loaded at mile 231 of the trip. The convoy set out from Thule takeoff on the 18th of May, 1960, and would travel for 26 days to get to the opposite coast, 664.4 miles. The official report of the operations of Lead Dog 1960 say that the expedition departed the end of the ramp road at 1100 hours on May 18th, after appropriate ceremonies. Those ceremonies included a Christian blessing and the appearance of a USO actress for photo opportunities. The first thing that the expedition likely noticed was that the new Caterpillar D8 tractors were ridiculously slow, just seven miles an hour, usually less. Again, great for construction sites, but just miserably slow in the Arctic. The weasels won the day yet again. The intense fog that dropped on the party at mile 180 brought the use of radar to the front. It was a bit of a surprise that the consumer marine radar didn't act as it should over ice. It was far too noisy. Well, off the shelf is always going to be a coin flip. It may save money, but it also may not work. Now. The living conditions were just fantastic, as far as the documentary films go. I understand that there are always things happening behind the scenes, but the official report said that the crew of the expedition got along very well, and the food and living space seemed designed to boost morale in the great frozen expanses. The Wanagans were heated by steam and provided a truly extraordinary range of luxuries on the ice. Luxuries, albeit in confined spaces. They were for eating, sleeping, and relaxing, as the film documentary says. Every possible morale feature had been provided, but it took a great deal of effort to shut out the emptiness of this Arctic region. There was a PX, with snacks and cigarettes at very reduced rates. A movie theater in the Signal Wanagon was set up. Steaks were served in the Mess Wanagon, and 12-hour shifts offset with 12 hours for sleep and what little fun there was to be had in the caravan. I've never found any evidence that beer was on offer. Count Eagle Knut 
The Danish Arctic explorer flew in on a helicopter during one of the blizzards that stalled the expedition to talk about Greenland archaeology. The lecture was taken respectfully. Actually, it's interesting because the teams that reached the far east of the island discovered some extraordinary archaeological remnants, a paleo-Eskimo camp that was more than 4,000 years old. After a total of 68 days on the ice, the expedition rolled, slid, and scratched its way back to Camp Tuto. After 1,800 total miles, the army had been successful in transiting the ice cap and creating a mobile camp that was truly something entirely new in Arctic exploration. But the U.S. Army had also been successful in carving out a place for itself in the Cold War world and the new decade of the space race, the arms race, and the so-called missile gap. The far north, the Greenland ice cap, had become the proving ground for the Army's most audacious attempts to demonstrate that a force made of men, not of missiles, still mattered in the new state of the warring world. This episode of the Cold War Vault was written and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. Footnotes for this episode and this series can be found in my article, Selling Greenland, the big picture television series and the Army's bid for relevance during the early Cold War. You can find that in the journal Centaurus, Volume 55, Issue 3. Music for this episode is by Lobo Loco. You can find a link for that in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, have a look at coldwarvault.com for images and links to videos and sound clips for this and every show. Like me on Facebook and follow on Twitter at The Cold War Vault. Listen, like, and subscribe to the show anywhere you find your favorite podcasts, especially Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, which makes a huge difference. Maybe next time we'll visit somewhere a little warmer for a change. I'll see you then.